Galatians chapter 6, verses 6 through 10. Let him who is taught the word share in all good things with him who teaches. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. For he who sows to his flesh will of the flesh reap corruption. But he who sows to the Spirit will of the Spirit reap everlasting life. And let us not grow weary while doing good, for in due season we shall reap if we do not lose heart. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us us do good to all, especially to those who are of the household of faith. Father, we uh, stand before you and ask your blessing. Uh, We pray, Lord, that you would open our ears to hear these words. Uh, We thank you for your word, Lord, and we thank you for the sacrifice of your Son and the power of the Holy Spirit at making that uh, known to us, that truth. We thank you now. In Christ's name we pray and ask your blessing. Amen. You may be seated. But last month, uh, we spoke on uh, Galatians. In Lincoln, last year, I preached a series of uh, messages on Galatians 1 through 5. And uh, when we came back to Omaha, there were three left undone. And so now, by God's grace, we had last month, this month, and next month openings where I could share these messages. So uh, last month, we uh, did the first five verses. Today, we do the next five, and then hopefully, praise God, next week or next month, we'll do the last one in Galatians 6. I was uh, deciding whether or not I would again review Galatians 1 through 5, and I think it's important that I do because a month is a long time, and uh, you weren't there for these 17 messages, so I just wanted to go through them even faster than last time. Last time I took, I think, nine minutes. This time I'll hopefully take four or five. So we'll see. Uh, First, Galatians is a letter that Paul wrote to a people called the Galatians, and he was very unhappy with them at the time he wrote his letter. He had probably been with them about two years earlier, a year and a half to two years earlier. And many of these people had come to faith uh, under his uh, preaching. And yet here they are being undone. His work in Galatia is being undone by a people that he refers to as the Judaizers. These are people that did believe Christ's message, but they believe that the gospel is taking an unnatural place, that it is entirely displacing the law. And the Judaizers essentially want to mix the two. They want to do what's called syncretize them. They want them both fully operational. And uh, Paul defends against that vociferously. So in uh, 1 Corinthians 15, the whole chapter is a great exposition of the gospel. Paul really doesn't define it here per se. Uh, The letter is written to a people who know what he's talking about. And so 1 Corinthians uh, 15 really captures the essence of the gospel, but it's, I don't know, 40 verses long, so I'm not going to read that. And so what I did last time is shared a way that uh, Charles Spurgeon, a famous preacher in London of like 120 years ago, closed a, a, a message that he gave. And uh, Larry corrected me earlier. He said, you didn't mention the resurrection when in that quote by Spurgeon. Uh, let me not cast that at Spurgeon's feet. He probably did, but I collapsed it way down to a couple sentences. And so I apologize if I omitted an essential aspect. But let me read what I have. This is what Spurgeon said at the end of a, of a worship service. He, doesn't, he wasn't one for giving altar calls, even though he was a Baptist. But, you know, Baptists are pretty much all over the spectrum when it comes to stuff like this. Our sins deserve punishment. God must and will punish sin. Jesus Christ came into this world and was punished 
in the place of all that believe on him. Now, we know there are lots of details of this that I'm glossing over, but that's the essence of what I wanted to share. We deserve to die. And this is what uh, Martin Luther referred to as the great exchange. And we might comment on that a little bit more later, or I might forget, whichever. But uh, this is the great exchange. We're on death row. Christ comes, displaces us from death row, bears our iniquity away with him. And we are blessed with his righteousness. So now uh, he uh, goes on in chapter two in Galatians to confront or potentially confront what he referred to as the pillars of the faith in Jerusalem. This is James, John, and Peter. He went there to do battle with them over the meaning of the gospel, and yet he found that they were in total agreement with them, so he didn't have to fight with them. As a matter of fact, they parted as, as brothers. They shook hands and said, okay, you take the Gentiles, we'll take the Jews. And that's how, that's how they left it. But later in chapter 2, he has to confront Peter on hypocrisy. Peter had come up to Antioch to visit Paul's church, which was probably the largest church in existence at the time, and it was a model for Jew and Gentile integration. So Peter comes up there from Jerusalem, and he loves it. He loves this church, and he's eating with the Gentiles and fellowshipping with them until the Jews from Jerusalem that he typically worships with come up to join him. And then he separates himself from the Gentiles. Paul finds out about it. He criticizes them very boldly, very publicly, confronts this as hypocrisy, and Peter acknowledges that it was. So chapter 3 Uh, Paul states that salvation has always been by faith. Abraham believed, and it was credited to him as righteousness. That is salvation by faith. And yet Abraham predates the Mosaic law by 400 years. And so what Paul says is the Mosaic law, when it came 400 years later, did not annul the promise to Abraham. It did not annul the means by which people are saved. People are saved by grace. So now I wanted to get to something actually that uh, Trevor and I discussed this week, and this is from uh, theological doctrines, but I wanted to talk a little bit about justification. In justification, there are things called the nature of it, the ground of it, and the instrument of it. The nature of justification is judicial. We are judicially declared innocent. I spoke of it earlier as the great exchange. And so we who are guilty and on death row are freed. We're not free to go. And yet, the one that took our place is punished. And yet, we receive his righteousness and walk away from that penalty of guilt. And yet, uh, he takes our guilt upon him and suffers for it. And yet, as you know, Larry pointed out to me, he is resurrected. He's sitting at the right hand of the Father. And we'll actually talk about a little bit more about that. But so that's the nature. It's judicial. The ground of justification is the substitutionary atoning death of Christ. So the nature is judicial. The ground is what I just described. The instrument is faith. We already hit upon that. So faith is not what saves us. It is that by which we are saved. We are saved by Christ through the instrument of faith. It is a tool God uses to save us. So then the very next question, and it's a very good one. Why then the law? What use is it? What good is it? Let's get rid of it. No, Paul says, the law is good. And he explains quite in detail why the law is good. And it performs two major functions. One, it restrains evil in society. Two, it reveals evil in our hearts. So it suppresses its effect in our world because people are are, uh, wanting to conform to the law, 
to, to be good, and yet it also reveals that we cannot be as good as we need to be as we want to be, as we know we could be. So that's the twofold function of the law. Then we go on to Galatians 4 and 5. Yes, you are free from condemnation. No, the law has no hold upon your life. You're free. Now, what are you going to do with your freedom? Are you going to enjoy sinning with your freedom? Is that why Christ set you free so that you could just go live like you want? No, God has set you free for a purpose. Therefore, glorify God in your bodies. That's your purpose once you're free. Even though you're no longer under the judgment, even though you can no longer go to hell, if you're truly saved, you're truly free. And yet, you must serve God with your freedom. So that's what he talks about in chapters 4 and 5. Then we come to chapter 6. I spoke about the last five verses uh, last time. And in the first five verses, that is essentially a spiritual uh, advice that he gives us as to how to spiritually advise and benefit our brethren. Today, we go into five verses that really speak more about how we can physically bless our brethren. So that's where we are. I brought you up to speed. It probably took more than four or five minutes. Okay, let me reread the text for today, though, because it's been 10 minutes and I've forgotten. Let him who is taught the word share in all good things with him who teaches. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. For he who sows to his flesh will of the flesh reap corruption. But he who sows to the spirit will of the spirit reap everlasting life. And let us not grow weary while doing good. For in due season we shall reap if we do not lose heart. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all, especially to those who are of the household of faith. As I said, Paul had talked about uh, blessing one another spiritually, serving one another spiritually in verses 1 through 5. He had, in Galatians 5, presented fruits of evil, fruits of wickedness, and the fruit of the Spirit. He'd contrasted them. And then he challenged people in Galatians 6 to avail themselves of that knowledge. Uh, Paul is a very practical teacher. He teaches you something, and then like 20 seconds later in his writing, he's expecting you to understand what he's taught and to use it, put it into application. So now, just because Paul separated these five verses from these five verses, the spiritual from the physical, doesn't mean that he wants us to live spiritually on Sunday and live physically the other days of the week. So see, spirit, spirit and body, right? We are spirit and body. We are what theologians refer to as a complex being. God is simple. God is a simple being. God just has a spirit, but we're complex because we have both a spirit and a body. By design, we have a spirit and a body. This is not unusual. This is not bizarre. This is not something that's in itself wrong or evil. When he created us with a spirit and a body in Genesis 1 and 2, he said, we are good. It is good. We were good before we fell. So don't buy the lie that has propagated ever since the Greeks that flesh is bad. Now, it's true that Paul uses the term flesh and often uses it in a deprecatory manner. But he's referring to sinful flesh, the sin in the flesh, not just bodies and spirits. So first, I want to say that then, that these are really one thing. What I told you last month is the same thing I want you doing at the same time as what I'm telling you this month. It's just you're to live life like this, integrated as spirit and body. So now let's look at verse 6. I summarized this, I paraphrased this, 
for the sake of sharing it. And this is how I read verse 6. Let the student share good things with the teacher. This is like bring the teacher an apple type of thing. Very uh, practical, very, um, uh, uh, I don't know what the word is, but you know, you're, you're, you're thanking them. You're, you're honoring them, I guess, is the word I was looking for. In Hebrews, it speaks of giving the elder the honor that is his due. That's what's really going on here. You're honoring the elder for their role in the body. Now, we honor everybody for our roles on the body, or we should. And yet here, Paul is singling out this one aspect, this one role. Let the student share good things with the teacher. So now, Ephesians 4, verses 11 through 12, and let me read this. Uh, Paul is writing of God. He himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of the ministry. It is God that has given us variety in this body. We're not a bunch of uh, uh, rubber stamp, cookie cutter people. God's made each of us unique. We have different strengths. We have different weaknesses. We have different needs. We have different wants. And he loves that. God loves variety. We should love variety. And so we should embrace the variety in one another. Too often we don't. Too often we regard ourselves as the standard of everything that is good and right in this world. And anything that attempts to change that is bad. It's just good and bad. It's just that simple. I'm good. You're all bad. You know, that's the way we practically live out our lives sometimes. And so we must always be aware of that. Our fallen flesh wants to set our flesh up on an idol and regard everybody else as unworthy. Uh, but that's what he's exactly fighting against just by saying there are some, there's some variety in our body. He wants you to respect that. He wants you to understand that. Now, verse 6 in and of itself, let him who has taught the word share in all good things with him who teaches. That sounds very plain, very unemotionally spoken, doesn't it? I mean, let me read it again. Let him who has taught the word Share in all good things with him who teaches. Blah, 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 blah. It's, it's just, it's kind of throwaway words almost. It seems so unemotional. But look at the next sentence. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that will he also reap. It's like, wow, that's shocking to me. Verse 6 is so bland. And yet verse 7 is so jolting. And it makes you realize that there's more in verse 6 than at first you suspect. There's more there than meets the eye. Now, why is it that he's so upset by the time he gets just a few words away in verse 7? I have a feeling I know what it is. It's, it's uh, trying to study Galatians, understand what he's writing about, and what could have possibly upset him at the point that he's talking about this. And let me share with you an, a hypothesis. I'm not saying that this is absolutely true, but I'm saying I think it's true. And anybody who's ever stood here in any church for any longer than a, than a few weeks and has been an elder in a church for any more than a few months or years would understand what I believe I'm talking about. So now, why does Paul first have to remind the Galatians to give to their leader, to their teacher? Why is he having to tell those that are taught in Galatia that they're supposed to do this? I believe it is because giving has dried up in the church in Galatia. These Judaizers have come in, they've raised a ruckus, they've cast all kinds of doubt into the minds of the people, and these people are all now questioning everything. 
And what do you do when you question things? You kind of start drawing yourself into yourself. It's like, now I suspect everybody. Everybody's out to get me. Everybody is wrong. I have to figure this out. I'm scared. When Paul was founding churches as he went on his missionary trips, he founded them fairly quickly. And he put men in charge in each of these churches. He appointed elders in all the churches. And so there are men who have most likely in this church become full-time in the pastorate. They've given up whatever secular work they were in two years earlier. And now they have cast themselves upon God's mercy. And not only God's mercy, upon the mercy of the people that are in their church. Judaizers have come in, have disrupted the unity that had existed, and now the giving has dried up. And this is why he gets so upset. Let him who has taught the word share in all good things with him who teaches. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that will he also reap. He is rebuking these people for having stopped giving of their tithes, I believe. That is exactly what he's saying. And, and I'll, get, I'll expand this more as we move forward. But I wanted to first share this. I believe all people need to be reminded to be generous because it's been my perception that many people are not generous by nature. Uh, I work with people, many people, who make very good livings. I work with people uh, that many of their household incomes are probably $150,000 to $200,000 and up because they're dual incomes. Some of them have no kids. Some have just one or two kids, and they make really good money. Uh, One fellow was always bumming money off of me and never repaying me. I mean, he lives in, I don't know what that place is, Barrington or whatever it is out there. I mean, he has a very, very nice home. And I know that this money doesn't matter much to him, but it's just silly to me that a person would consistently bum money from me when he's far more wealthy than me and just conveniently forget about it from day to day, week to week. So I also uh, was asked by one of these people a couple years ago to give to breast cancer. I'm like, sure, you know, I mean, pretty much anybody that asked me to give something, I'll give something, you know, when it's for a good cause. But months later, I went to them. There was a person that I heard of that was sick. Uh, It was the brother of a coworker. And this person who's sick, his name was Rodney. And I thought, well, we Rodney's got to stick together. I'm going to support Rodney. And so I started raising money for like this operation that he needed. He, He didn't have health insurance. He was here in Omaha. And so I started raising money. I went to that person that I'd given the 20 bucks to the, for the breast cancer. Oh, well, I don't know them. I'm not going to give them any money. I thought, wow. And this is one of these dual-income households with one child. And uh, I'm sure they have many gobs of money. But 20 bucks was too much. That was just too much to ask. So I know people personally, and I consider them friends, who are not very generous at all. I'm not saying that of of any of you, frankly. I I don't know you well enough, but I know I've seen tremendous acts of generosity in this church. So this is not personal. But I am saying that people have to be reminded to be generous. And that's what Paul was doing here. Now, I can understand generosity drying up outside the church, you know, because they're really not beholden to any principles of generosity other than whatever they grew up with, I guess. But in the church, we're always called upon to act generously. There is a story that I believe uh, Phil shared last week uh, in Matthew 18. It's about the story of the man who's forgiven a debt of like a billion dollars. I mean, that's what that 10,000 talents is. A talent is humongous amount of money. And he's forgiven a debt of a billion dollars. And then the first thing he does is go out 
and rattled a cage of a man who owed him like 20 bucks. And he says that he's going to throw him into prison until he pays him back. And uh, the, the person who had forgiven the debt of the billion dollars hears of this and then, of course, takes that man and has him cast into prison. You know, he might have forgiven that debt, but he's still holding them accountable for it. It was, it was not a, a foregone conclusion, I guess. But see, this in context was a message of forgiveness because that was what was specifically asked. How many times should I forgive and how should I forgive? And, and Jesus was explaining, you who have forgiven much should be prepared to forgive everybody all the time. Yet it's also a picture of generosity, right? Because this person is not being very generous. He's been treated with such liberality, and yet he cannot pass that on to someone else. Now, let's bring this into our Bible context. Uh, Jesus has just told the Galatians, the, pe- the people there, to share in good things with the pastor. So we're talking about a church member supporting a pastor. The Judaizers have been undermining this. And I believe that the people, the tithing has dried up. The people are concerned about this, and they want it to get worked out before they're willing to, to choose sides. We know in churches that that often happens. There are these factions that develop, and suddenly everybody's being asked to choose sides. There are many ways to destroy a church, and one of the ways is to just drive the finances. A man can't uh, serve in a church if suddenly his income drops from what he was used to to half that or a third that or a quarter that. He has to do something else. So this will tend to kill off a church, starving finances. As a matter of fact, our colonial forefathers knew this. This is why they wanted control of the purse strings over the governors that were in our territories. They knew that as long as the crown was funding them, they couldn't have any influence over them. And that's what they needed. That's what they wanted. They wanted those people to be beholden to them. And that's what it is. That's what we're talking about. With the colonialists, I'm putting it in a positive context. We want to control of our own destiny in that regard. But here we're talking about it in a very tricky context, because when the congregation gives and supports the pastor, the pastor then might feel obligated to please those people not say anything that would rile those people. And I'm describing all the churches in America. I mean, churches, pastors are really under threat of having their livelihood removed if they don't toe the line, if they don't placate all the people, especially the people that tend to fund all their projects in their churches. So the pastor must be above that. He must keep his uh, 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 discipline of never softening the word when it comes to presenting it. When I read text, I try to present that text. Obviously, I'm human. Sometimes as a text, I'm working through it. I'm like, ooh, this might offend this person or that person. You can't soften it. You can't tighten it. You can't direct it. You can't not direct it. You just have to pray to God that he would be uh, in the situation that God, you chose this text. I didn't go into the Bible looking for a text to pick on so-and-so. It's just the, bi- the text picks me. And so God picks that text and he then uh, has it come out like this. So now, in our church, uh, and, uh, and I was really glad, I told Phil, I, honestly, I said, Phil, this is the text. And I said, I'm so glad you're not gonna be here because I need to preach what is in my heart, that what I believe God is putting there. So, We here, when we join a church, we tithe, what's called tithe to the church, which is typically regarded as a tenth of our income. And so we tithe to that church, and we are very honest about it. You know, uh, we have the membership covenant in which we state clearly the expectations. Now, we don't have any 
forms that we're going to fill out annually. We don't have any Gestapo that we're going to send out to investigate. I mean, this is all a conscience thing. It's all just, we agreed, this is what it was. We can talk about it before it's signed. But really, once it's signed, we just let it go. And yet, we can't help but notice, and I can't help but notice, and actually, I'm so totally involved, uninvolved with the money that's collected week to week, but I know various people who have left our church who no longer tithe, and yet they're still members here. Is that being faithful to the covenant that people have made in this church? No, it's not. Now, I believe there are two reasons why this happens. There are two reasons why people stop tithing. First, they've moved away. They've moved to Florida or the moon or wherever, but they don't feel like they're a part of this body anymore. And so they just quit giving. It's just that simple. Out of sight, out of mind. And it's such a tedious task to sit down and write a check and send it to somebody. But yet, that is what I believe the covenant that you make with a local church is. It's a promise. Now, granted, that's going to change. And so we encourage people, go find a church where you're moving to, uh, settle in quickly, begin tithing to them. You know, when we transfer the membership, that's when we expect you to transfer the tithe. It's just that simple. And yet, I don't think most people work that way. Uh, tithe is their money, and they're going to keep it until they, you know, want to give it up. And I believe that most people, when they leave a church, stop tithing. That's my belief. I, I would say 50% of the people probably stop doing that. Um, are they tithing at their new church? I don't know. Are they, are they saving their tithe for when they join a church and giving it to them? I don't know. Are they taking their tithe and sending it to some parachurch organization for that time until they find a new church? I don't know. But I know that what they should be doing, I believe biblically and covenantally, is continuing to honor their commitments until those commitments are changed, altered. Now that, I know, are hard words. I myself probably have never done that. I've been here for 11 years, and so I've never had to be challenged to that. But as I work through the text, it just stands to reason. And this, I believe, is what uh, Paul is addressing in the church in Galatia. He's saying these men have covenanted with this community to serve them, to serve them faithfully. And they were promised a certain tithe out of this. And now you're withdrawing it like it's yours to keep. And it's not. It's God's. And you're keeping it from God. And you're keeping it from doing the purpose to which you'd intended it and to which God had intended it. So now, why... Do people feel justified in doing this? That's my next question. I already spoke about uh, lack of generosity and out of sight, out of mind. That's one aspect of it that's kind of, I think, understandable to all of us. People just move away and they think, well, you know, I'm no longer personally benefiting from being at that church, so I'm just not going to ever send them any more money. I'm just looking for a new church to give my money to. So now, that's a good thing. I mean, they want to support the church. They just think that they have this luxury of just not supporting them as long as they're not going. Now, we in this country have a, have a, a great number of people who are no longer worshiping in churches that consider themselves Christians. They worship in their homes. And I can't help but believe that not tithing is a factor in that. Because, hey, I can tithe to myself. You know, my church is in my house now. So I could tithe to me. You know, it's benefiting the most important, important people in my life, my family. So now we rationalize that the church that we've left has broken faith with us somehow. Otherwise, why would we be leaving? As I said, we are perfect. We are good. The world revolves around us. So if I'm leaving this church, it's obvious that that church is not worth staying at. That is honestly what happens a lot. I see it all the time. People who consider themselves extremely mature Christians behave like that. 
They walk away from a church, they wipe the dust off their feet, and they just keep going. They never look back. And yet, there might be a good reason why people leave churches. Churches can be very bad. But yet, in the context of, that I'm talking of, I know that the church was not bad. And so, I can't see, I can't condone what it is that these people are doing. Now, lack of generosity, and what I would characterize the, this example of, is meanness of spirit. Meanness of spirit that, that uh, prevails over what God would otherwise want to draw out of us. I believe I've shared with you once an example when I was at NASA long ago where I was appointed to collect the money for the uh, annual contribution to the United Way. And I told my boss, I said, I've never participated in this. I hate this. I despise this. I don't believe in it. I do not give to it, and I will not give to it. Well, that's all well and good, Rob, but I want you to be our person. I'm like, oh, great. So I had to write an email and send it out to everybody. And in it, I said, please, please take note of what you're giving your money to. Because there are good organizations out there, and there are bad organizations out there. So what happened? Well, you know, 99% of the people just did their own thing, right? They do what they want to do. But there was one guy who was the head of another, uh, like one of the departments, and he called me. He said, Rod, I've got my card ready. Can you come get it? I said, okay. So I went to get his card. Planned Parenthood. You know, I mean, he, he, just, he just wanted to rub my nose in it. He was a liberal, and he was proud of it, and he wanted me to come get his card. Now, I have to admit, when I was walking away from his office, I was like, I could just erase this, and I can give it to Christians. But I thought, no, that's meanness of spirit. And we can't do that as Christians, you know? Not that I could care less whether he looked into it and caught me out. It's just not right. So I had to honor his wishes. I was put in this position, and I just, I, I mean, honestly, I never thought twice about it. I mean, I just first thought about it, and I was like, no, I can't do that, unfortunately. You know, so I just took it in and passed it in with all the others. But that, to me, is meanness of spirit. That's that, that's that temptation that we're faced with. When this came up, when I was meditating on this text like a week or so ago, the thought came to me of a metaphor to share with you or an illustration. And my immediate thought was, no, I've kind of used illustrations similar to that before, and I don't want to use it this time. The funny thing is, though, that the very next day it happened to me, the very next day. Now, this is something that doesn't happen to me every day. It probably hadn't happened to me in months, yet it happened to me the very next day. And I thought, okay, well, God obviously wants me to use this. So this is what it was, and it's one of my favorite illustrations. It's driving. I mean, who of us doesn't? isn't tempted to practice meanness of spirit when we're driving. I don't think my wife is, honestly. I mean, I've, I've ridden with her enough to see that she doesn't get angry at much, whereas I get angry at more than a little. So uh, I was commuting to work. I was going down Q Street. I was coming down this hill. And at the bottom of the hill, you have to turn left to get onto Millard Avenue and go out towards the freeway. And the left lane kind of gets filled up, you know, because everybody's mostly going that way. And I was in the left lane. And just the night before, I'd been thinking, what if someone cuts me off? And then, a minute or two later, I'm given the opportunity to be mean to them. Not to really be mean, but just not to be nice. Not to let them in when they need to get into my lane again. I'm going down the hill, and this big white SUV, you know, slams right in front of me. You know, drives down the hill. There's not enough room, but they just slam in front of me. And, of course, they don't use their blinker. That's typical. So... I, th- I thought, wow, this is funny. I was just thinking about this last night. 
but they'll certainly get way ahead of me by the time I have to get up and turn right onto L Street, of course. So now when you turn left onto Millard Avenue, you have two lanes. It's the, it's the slow, polite people that get in the right lane. It's the rude, impatient people that get in the left lane. Now, I'm not going to tell you which lane I normally choose, but this day I chose the right lane. And so I'm in the right lane, and I'm thinking, oh, I'm being so good. I'm in the right lane. I just got cut off. I'm not really going to take it out on anybody. So I stay in the right lane. Lo and behold, the left lane is closed ahead. There's like some big pothole that they're fixing. And, and I'm cruising along, and there's that white SUV. And I thought, this is now getting pretty bizarre. But so I slowed down. I'm like, God, this is, this is pretty cool. So I slowed down, and sure enough, you know, the white SUV jumped in. It, now, of course they didn't know who I was. They didn't know they'd cut me off back there. They didn't know I was being nice to them. But does it matter? Does it matter that they didn't know? Of course not. doesn't matter. But yet, as you're driving up there, typically, on a day when I hadn't just been meditating on it 12 hours earlier, this is how it would have perhaps played out. There he is. There's the guy. Speed up. Cut him off. Rod, how dare you think that way? Don't do that. That would be rude. Ah, he doesn't know you're a Christian. Who cares about him? You have to teach him a lesson. Otherwise, he'll keep doing this to everybody. Rod, it's not your job to teach people lessons. It's God's. Yeah, but he doesn't know you're a Christian. You don't have a sticker. Smart move. (laughs) But God will know. You don't have a sticker, but God knows you're a Christian. So see, that's what normally... Now, too, as this is playing out, you're actually reflecting on it because the guy's cut in, you've slammed him, and you've been ticketed for tailgating, right? That's what really would happen. But, but that's what normally you're thinking. I'm thinking, I, on, I admit, but I have been getting much better about this since I've been preaching about it. Since I've been using it as an illustration, I'm trying to sanctify that aspect of my life. I don't want to be rude to people. Uh, I watched a movie last night. It was called... Uh, uh, taking chance it's about a a body being transported across the country back home after being killed in iraq the beautiful thing about it was just the honor that they were doing to this body in the military there's a phrase that refers to bad conduct it's called conduct unbecoming conduct unbecoming an officer and all along the path there are these practices that the person who's attending the body the escort And that's what this person was doing. They were escorting this body across the country. And he had to stop and salute very slowly that body as it was being transported from one vehicle to another. It was being taken off the plane. Each time it would pass him, he would salute very slowly. See, this is uh, how we treat people, how we treat soldiers in the service that have died in service of the country. And it's a beautiful illustration because this is conduct becoming the people of this country. It's the way that we're treating these people with respect. Whereas we are Christians. We're not just Americans. We're not just U.S. citizens. We're Christians. We are members of God's family. We are members of God's country. We represent him. We are his ambassadors on earth in the flesh. So I don't care if that person knows or can figure out that I'm a Christian or not. I don't want to act in a manner that is unbecoming of being a Christian. And so I can't think about, will I be found out? That's the little red guy talking. I have to be listening to the little white guy that's just telling me what to do, that's telling me that this is conduct becoming a child of God. So let me 
tie this all in, let me speak very plainly that a church and the, and the, the full-time pastor, especially like our pastor Kaiser that's in our church, he is very susceptible to what happens with the tithe money. People can leave churches for many reasons. I would just encourage you that as you've covenanted with this body, consider seriously your tithe and your promised support of the church. If you need to leave the church for any reason, by all means do so. But please be fair in how it's done. It's just all I think that a pastor should be able to ask. And of course, he would not do this. We all know that. That's why I'm really thankful that this verse came up for me today. So I can share this with you. I believe this is by God's design that this was an opportunity that I could avail myself of. Now, let's go on in the text. We're up to verse 7. Let me read 6 and 7 again. Let him who has taught the word share in all good things with him who teaches. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that will he also reap. We know the reaping and sowing, the sowing and reaping illustrations in the Bible. They're very, very common. Paul points out self-interest here. And so we are to do what is right and good. And we are to do it because it's right and good. But we are also blessed by it. You're blessed when you do the right thing. Imagine if I do drive to work aggressively. Imagine if I am cutting off everybody who might otherwise try to test my skills at driving. Um, I don't want to arrive at work in a good mood. I'm probably pretty tense. I'm very upset with anybody who did happen to get in. Whereas if I'm just letting it go, if I'm relaxing, if I'm praying for these people that are being jerks, I, re- I arrive at work in sync with God. I arrive at work in a much better mood, ready to go about my day. And, and, you're laying up treasure in heaven. It's a win-win. You just get to do all these wonderful things just by overlooking other people's uh, sinful tendencies. Now, verse 8 goes on to say, For he who sows to his flesh will of the flesh reap corruption, but he who sows to the Spirit will of the Spirit reap everlasting life. Years ago, Pastor Kaiser preached a series called Laws of Harvest. And he spoke about how, really, God has designed the world with the laws of harvest built right into them. This is why some cultures, even though they have no idea who Jesus Christ is, they're blessed by God because they honor God's laws of economics. They honor God's laws of hard work ethics. They honor much of the biblical principles that God has built into the fabric of our world. So farmers must sow the seed, and then what do they do? They work, they wait, they work. They wait. There's a lot of that in the farming community. But yet, if they're not working on the days that they really should be working, there is going to be trouble down the road. They're now behaving like the grasshoppers as opposed to the ants, right? So farmers probably know better than anybody else that you have to work when it's proper to work, and yet there are times when you just there isn't a whole lot to do. You have to wait. You have to be patient. You cannot sow something and then reap it a second later. It's like the the Wiley Coyote cartoon, right? Where he sticks the envelope in the mailbox for the missile and then stands there and then opens it up and the missile is there. That's not how life works. Life is a little more difficult than that. Life takes a lot more time to, to flow. So now, when we reap, we reap what we sow. If we plant corn, we reap corn. If we plant oats, we reap oats. We can't plant one and get another. And so that's where the contrast between what we sow in righteousness and what we sow in unrighteousness, we will reap it. If you are sowing in unrighteousness now, 
and yet you come to Sunday church thinking that that undoes it. It doesn't. We know this. Our sins are being sown and our sins are being reaped in their time. They will not just die in the ground unless you are killing them, unless you are exterminating them. So when we sow and reap, we sow and reap what it is that we've sown and reaped. If we are sowing righteousness, we reap righteousness. If we're sowing sin, we reap sin. It's just that simple. You can't escape these laws of harvest. If we do not teach our children Christian virtues, if we don't model for our children Christian virtues, they will not exercise Christian virtues. If we don't demonstrate to them faith in God, then they will not develop faith in God. God has made it so simple for us. Now, it's true that we might do all things right and still have troubles. That's true. And yet, do we really do all things right? Do we do them as well as we should or we could? I think very few of us could say that we do. Now, verse 9, and let us not grow weary while doing good. Let us not grow weary while doing good. I think we all intuitively understand what this is saying. And I'll use an illustration from my son's life. I didn't tell him I was going to do this. But uh, Zai has been working at Panda Express for, I don't know, six months or so now. And when he started working there, he is a good worker. And he just did everything, did all the menial tasks, you know, just go ahead, let me have it. Well, co-workers really like having someone around like that. Oh, that's Zaya's job. I don't have to do that menial task. That's Zaya's job. So Zaya can feel put upon at times. Oh, yeah, I don't have to do that. I'll just wait and Zaya will do it. You know, and we don't always have managers that notice this type of thing. Too often, many of us don't. And so we are inclined then to not continue in those good things that we began uh, fortunately, in Zaya's case, he does have a good manager that notices everything. And so uh, she sees that she's got a really good worker on her hands, and she keeps telling him. And we keep telling him, don't be fooled. We keep telling her, don't be fooled. We go there and kid him all the time when he's at work. You keep making him work hard. If you have a problem with him, with let us know. But uh, what I talked to him about, of course, was, hey, even if the manager doesn't notice, even if the coworkers are abusing, really, this that they should be participating in, um, we know our ultimate employer is God. God sees. God sees everything. Our manager might miss a lot, but God sees it, and God will reward you. He will reward you for selfless actions. I don't care what those actions are. If they're selfless, if they're intended for others, he'll reward you for them. So in due season, we shall reap if we do not lose heart. Weariness in doing good begins in our hearts. The weariness in doing good isn't just when our body stops doing it. It's when our mind stops valuing it. I want to tell a story. Over in Spain, there's a mountain called Mount Serrat. There's this monastery, Christian monastery, at the top of this mountain. And this is a very strict sect of monks. They, the young monks that uh, go there and join are not allowed to speak but two words every two years. So every two years, this, this young monk was given an opportunity to speak. So they all gather together. The young monk who's been there two years now, he comes forward, and they ask him what he has to say. He says, food, terrible. 
Two years pass. They're all called together again. Bed, lumpy. Comes together again two years later. It's been six years now. The, the father asks him, well, what do you have to share with us this time? I quit. <laughs> and the, fe- the man at, that, that runs the monastery said, well, I'm not surprised. All you do is complain. <laughs> so now we know that those six words weren't all the complaining that that uh, soundless monk was voicing, right? If he's that negative about his whole stay at this monastery, then obviously he's probably not been participating in all the things that the monks were doing at that monastery. And yet uh, we might think it a little harsh that that you know, father complains him for complaining. But I believe we see beyond the words. We see how that guy was living those six years while up there. Jesus said, your father who sees in secret will reward you publicly. So all that which we do, all that which we do for selfless reasons, to serve others, God will reward us for. Verse 10, therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all. As we have opportunity. An opportunity is something that you really must be looking for to notice it, right? Um, Sometimes time can pass and we don't think we've had any opportunities. But really, if you're praying for things, you'll notice that you start witnessing things far more often than you otherwise would. So if you're really seeking opportunity, you'll be praying for it and God will be giving it to you. So when you have opportunity, you're to do good to whom? To all. You're to do good to all. Our obligation as Christians is to all of humanity. There is none spared that. It's not just to our blood relatives. It's not just to our Christian brothers. Our obligation is to every living soul on this earth. And uh, an example of that, I think, is when uh, uh, Joseph collected for the people of Haiti a few weeks ago. His heart went out to a people that he's never seen, a place that he's never been. This is what God does. God ministers to you and your heart. Sometimes I've read news articles that just really move me. And many people, when they're moved like that, they will send gifts or money or cards of encouragement, stuff like that. And sometimes when you follow up on it later, I mean, some of these people have had thousands, tens of thousands of dollars given to them that have had bad things happen to them because the compassion of the people that have read about it pour out upon them. They take uh, pity upon them. They have sympathy for them. Uh, in an, in a, uh, oh, I'm sorry, verse 10b, uh, let us do good to all, especially to those who are of the household of faith. Okay, now, our obligation is to all. Yet, the text here clearly says, especially to those who are of the household of faith. So, it's not an all or nothing, but there is an emphasis here. There is an emphasis upon the body. There is an emphasis upon your brothers and sisters in the Lord. Let me give you an illustration. Uh, We watched a movie where there's this plane crash, and all these people are walking out of the wreckage of this plane crash. And, of course, many of them are stunned. Many of them are hurt, but many of them are not hurt, miraculously. But what are these people doing? Granted, they're in shock, but these people are calling out for their loved ones in any thing like this, any disaster like this, in the earthquake, in Loma Prieta, you have the uh, first 
uh, thoughts be of those that you were with, your family members, that type of thing. So here you are, and, and in, a, in a fit of analytical reason, I'm just thinking, boy, that's so inefficient. These healthy people are just all wandering around looking for family members when there are people hurting right next to them. They could be dragging them all out of the wreckage and helping them survive. And self-interest is at work here. And if everybody did that, all the people would get pulled out very quickly, right? Whereas when you're looking around for just your loved one, oh, yeah, yeah, you're hurt, but you're not my loved one. Oh, no, you too, yeah, yeah, go away. Now, we might take mercy on some little kid or something, but you really, we, we want to satisfy our longing to see our loved one. And so we are looking for our loved ones in this situation. I, I, as a matter of fact, on another kind of funny note on this, uh, my wife and I lived out in Northern California in the Bay Area, like six million people, at least at that time, probably more now, but in the ring of the San Francisco Bay Area. And if you're ever, ever in California around Thanksgiving, don't drive on I-5 between Northern and Southern California on the Wednesday before Thanksgiving. Just don't do it. It's not wise. Because about a third of the people that live in the San Francisco Bay Area get in their cars Wednesday morning, and they start driving to L.A. And about a third of the people from L.A. get in their cars and start driving north to San Francisco Bay Area. Because apparently they have family in both those areas, and they're getting together. And when you need to stop and get gas or eat, or go to the bathroom. I mean, you're talking about an hour and a half long adventure. It's, it's crazy. I mean, it's really crazy. You're out in the middle of nowhere, middle of nowhere, California, and you'll just be waiting to queue off the freeway for a half a mile, a mile. And so I had a good idea when this was happening. I, saw, I thought, why don't we just change families? We'll trade families. Our grandparents are in San Diego. Why don't we just pick grandparents that are up in the San Francisco Bay Area? We'll go spend Thanksgiving with them. And then we'll have another family down in San Diego whose grandparents are up here, and we'll have them go visit our family. Wouldn't that be much more efficient? All that wasted effort, all that time. But that won't work, will it? No, because our hearts don't care. For, now, they might. Maybe we can learn to love these people that, we're, that we've traded relatives for. But it would, it's almost too efficient. It doesn't address the human need. We are in a family. We're in blood relative families. We're in spiritual families. We're in uh, cult cultural families. All of these have a meaning to us. And we're patterned after God. And so see, what I'm saying is a reflection of God's character. God also has favorites, doesn't he? Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated. So that's what we're faced with in this verse. Yes, we love all. Yes, we have an obligation to all. But also, our first and primary duty is to the household of faith. So that's what's important to remember here. We could have some government bureaucracy try to, to be created to address these human needs. And it won't work. We know it won't work. We are desperately trying to do it in our society right now. But it will not work. Because that bureaucrat sitting at a desk checking boxes doesn't love you. They don't care. And they'll as easily check a box that gives you drugs as, as withholds those drugs. Because you fall at some statistical range that requires that he check those boxes, yes or no. So see, it's only family that will love you. That's partly why we, our prisons are full. Because these young people are growing up in families that don't really love them too much because they're not 
calling them to account for their behavior. They're not raising them to be good citizens. So by the time they're 20, 21, 22, they're getting thrown in prison because their family didn't love them as much as they ought. And if your family didn't love you enough to make you be good, the government certainly isn't. All they're going to do is imprison you because you violated the rules, which, of course, we want them to do. That's necessary. It's an essential aspect of us living in society. So another thing that I think I should cover here, though, in that when we grow weary in doing good is this. Sometimes we uh, grow weary in doing good because people don't appreciate it. There are many people who don't appreciate the good deeds of Christians. As a matter of fact, a derogatory term for Christians is do-gooders. They're do-gooders. This is the early Christians were called do-gooders derogatively. I was reading an article about Kurt Warner. If you know Kurt Warner, he was the uh, man who was bagging groceries in Iowa and then the next year was leading the St. Louis Rams to a Super Bowl victory as their quarterback about eight, nine years ago. I forget how long. But anyway, he's a very, very outspoken Christian. And he said that about half his team hates him, really. I mean, they have no clue who he is and what he's about, and they really don't like him. Now, they'll admit that he does a lot of good stuff, and they'll derogatively call him a do-gooder. Not, of course, publicly, but in the locker room. And uh, he is a person who, here who is really suffering the disapprobation of his fellows and his friends for doing good, for continually doing good. A friend at work told me about his first job when he was down in St. Louis. He took a job at the uh, Union, uh, and it was an auto plant in Illinois. And, you know, he's a young 16, 17-year-old kid. You know, he's going he's gonna to be enthused and start his job. So he starts his job, and he's, he's working hard. And he had Union guys come to him and said, if you continue doing this, we'll break your arms. You're showing us all up. Slow down. I mean, they, they threatened his life. He had to slow down or he was going to get hurt because that was not expected of these workers. And he said he, he was scared, and, and he abided by their demands. He did not insist on doing his best. Now, if he were a Christian, this man's not a Christian, but if he were a Christian, or if I were in his shoes, what would I do? If my son came to me and said, Dad, this happened to me at Panda, what am I going to do? I'd say, son, you keep working. That's why we, t- that's why we trained you up to get you a black belt. You can, he's not, he's not going to break your arms easily. But so we have to do good. It's what God commands us to do. And so in our society, Christ was condemned for his good acts. He was crucified for his uh, kindness. And so we will be likewise. It's just what society will do. They'll love us one day and hate us the next because they're not like us. And they don't want to be like us. And they really don't like us being like us. So... We are at opposition with a society that, that uh, Paul is saying, this, your Galatian culture, you're fitting into your world. You're fitting into your culture, and that's wrong. You have to go against your culture sometimes. You have to do what is right. And he's telling them, this is what's right. I want to end with an odd suggestion, and that is uh, we watched a movie, and actually we even gave it to the, uh, presented it to the church years ago, six, seven, eight years ago, I forget but uh, we viewed it at my house. It's called Saving Grace. It's very, very funny. It's about the Pope getting locked out of the Vatican and not wanting to get back in because he doesn't like uh, participating in all this stuffy stuff. And he goes off to this small Italian town and starts serving the people, doing what it is that Christians are supposed to do. And uh, it's called Saving Grace. It was made like 25 years ago. But I, I, I want to encourage you all to go find that. 
uh, and watch it. Uh, those of you that were at my house, I think, would agree that it was a great movie. There's another example of Saving Grace that came out about six, seven years ago that's horrible. Don't get that one. This one was from a long time ago. But uh, anyway, with that, I want to close us in prayer and encourage you to serve God faithfully, to do good to all, especially to those that are of the household of faith. Father, we thank you for your word. Uh, We thank you for this experience of these Galatian people um, trying to do what's best, trying to figure out what's right, and yet just erring, uh, reverting to their former behavior. Lord, we are all susceptible to this. So we ask for your courage and for your uh, encouragement that we would do what is right, uh, despite the fact that oftentimes our culture uh, wants us to be conformed in their image as opposed to yours. We thank you now, Father, for your uh, word, and we pray that your Holy Spirit would apply it to our hearts and minds. We thank you for Christ Jesus and his sacrifice on our behalf, and we ask you to be with us in the week ahead, to guide us in all that we do, and strengthen our walk with you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.